Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by journalist and author David Aronovich to discuss the future of conservatism. David attended the recent National Conservative Conference so that you didn't have to and wrote it up for the cover story for the brand new issue of Prospect that hits the newsstands and the website today. So I'm glad you uh, survived that experience, David. But but we'll we'll get into what the conference was like. But who are the National Conservatives? It's a good question. Um, uh, the way in which the several cabinet ministers who attended there were two cabinet ministers and uh, an ex minister and a couple of ex ministers who attended the conference spoke. You might have imagined that this was a kind of loose affiliation of loose group of conservative supporting people from round the shires who they wanted to prove their leadership credentials to or simply in the case of michael gove to have a rather fun conversation with uh, but actually national conservatism is a very distinct ideological brand in fact it's a relatively new ideological brand um, which comes out of a out of a very nationalist strain in Israel mixed with uh, a lot of american money from uh, the, from right wing philanthropists in america and now is also supplemented by quite a lot of activity and money from hungary uh, from viktor orban's hungary uh, in order to kind of create a distinct blend of ethno-nationalism um, uh, and conservatism, i.e. a exaggerated respect for what they consider to be tradition and traditional forms, and with something very alien to the modern British tradition, um, which is a considerable amount of religiosity, which the Conservatives uh, from the Conservative Party who were attending simply had failed to notice. So I think it's fair to say that the mainstream conservatives, conservatives who went there for a bit and dabbled in it and wanted to get some support there had somehow or other failed to notice what it is they were actually attending. So you, you list the people who went. There was Jacob Rees-Mogg and Lord, as we must call him, David Frost, Suella Braverman, Michael Gove, and then a bunch of people like Darren Grimes, Toby Young, and Douglas Murray, who who talked about Germany mucking up 
<laughs> a couple of times. I wasn't there for that. That was that was that was on the first evening when they had a dinner in the in the Natural History Museum, and quite rightly they understood that. Uh, I think Douglas Murray's joke was, you know, kind of uh, there I would be a kind of you know extinct species talking to a bunch of fossils. Um, and of course that had a, a degree of truth to it, but unfortunately the press were not allowed into that. Uh, session, uh, so I couldn't attend it and hear that particular hear that particular remark. But Douglas Murray is in many ways the National Conservative sort of British champion. Their 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 great British figure is not Margaret Thatcher, it's Sir Roger Scruton. Um, uh, after whom there are named foundations and so on. Roger Scruton is very big in Hungary, by whom he was awarded uh, a major award just before he died in London. Uh, Victor Orban conferred it personally um, uh, for services to national conservatism and, and to the Orban view, essentially of what we would call uh, illiberal democracy, which is essentially majoritarianism at any one stage. Uh, which is to say that if you get a majority in Parliament, then you're able to do whatever you like, including take over the media effectively, uh, shackle the courts, and do it all in the name of the needs of the nation and the true beliefs of the majority. I think it's the thing which I think we can honestly say that the master of it is Vladimir Putin, and the apprentice to it is uh, President Erdogan of Turkey. So you you say that a lot of people in the audience, the people who are attracted to the, the theme of the conference, may not have known much about where it came from. Um, so what what you've done for our piece is to uh, begin by looking at the the tenets of what's called the Edmund Burke Foundation, which I think is the brainchild of uh, the Israeli political philosopher you mentioned, Yoram Hazoni. Is that how we pronounce it? Uh, that's how I intend to pronounce right. it. That's okay. how they pronounced it there. Whether that's how it's pronounced in Jerusalem, I couldn't tell you. So can you, you said there are 10 themes. Um, I don't know if you can remember them all, but, <laughs> but if you can outline um, the themes that you can remember. They, it begins with anti-globalization. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that there, there are number that. the first or foremost principle is that the uh, organizational basis of all uh proper human life um at at the at the political level is the nation uh, and the nation is embodied in its history and tradition and its ethnicity um the people it doesn't say black or white etc but essentially it's eth- ethnicity um uh, which means principle 2 effectively that any su- uh, larger global organization which in any way curbs the freedom and the right of the national government to make its sovereign decisions is evil, effectively. It's unnatural and cuts across. So that would include the United Nations when it adumbrates the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. So one of the things you will not find in their in their statements uh, or, or statement of principles is reference to human rights, because human rights would be regarded as being an externally imposed uh, set of rules. Um, Anything that gets in the way internally of if you if, of the national legislature doing whatever it feels is necessary to be done in the name of the people, such as, for example, courts who make rulings according to human rights legislation, they are also uh, wrong and bad and evil because they also uh, uh, dis, uh, act against that principle. So. Yes to the nation, above all, and the nation as historically determined. Of course, you may spot a problem here. 
who adjudicates between nations when they decide that my nation needs something that your nation won't give me? Well, they are silent on this. You can have trade agreements, you can have defensive alliances, but you may not do anything, you may not do anything else. So the EU is evil, the UN is evil. NATO is just about acceptable because it is regarded as a defensive alliance, provided it doesn't do anything that's not defensive. And this very much also feeds into the what we used to call the American paleoconservative view, the America first view, isolationism, which is you don't want to get entangled in foreign, alli- in foreign alliances, etc., because you only ought to do the things which are in the direct interests of the state. So that's your first point of organization. Your second point of organization is the family. The family, the traditional family, as laid down of a man and a woman and the children, is the organizational basis of any good society, they say. Anything that cuts against it is to be deprecated. Anything that encourages it is good. So, for example, there's a lot of talk at the National Conservatism Conference of the falling birth rate, which is a genuine problem, and so on, um, together with a kind of uh, rather authoritarian notion of how the birth rate ought to be or ought to be supplemented without actually ever spelling it out. I mean, essentially, they would like heroes of motherhood who have 10 children to be celebrated in the nation, but they didn't quite have the uh, courage to say so. But that's essentially uh, where they uh, where they would like to go. So nation, no internationals, then we have the family, and then we have the church. Whichever, what they say is, whatever is the majority religion of the country ought to be given privileges and ought to be recognised. Um, it doesn't totally specify how, but one can imagine all kinds of so I, I, I imagine for I, I I would think that for example prayers in schools if we were literally if we would go down that path would come back in religious assemblies in schools would come back in and formal kind of recognition of course we have an established church which actually has members in the House of Lords so according to the National Conservatives that must be good or would be good if they approved of the current Church of England, which they don't because, of course, it's woolly liberal. And then you come down on the, the, to the elements which are more uh, uh, proscriptive. They are very against current universities in their statement of principles. Current universities essentially have been suborned by uh, globalist liberals, um, and uh, most of them should be defunded by the state unless they begin to meet the objectives set for them by national government. That is within their founding principles. The other thing that they say that is that a national uh, is that a national government has a responsibility not just to deal with lawlessness, but this is a very interesting uh, phrase, but also to take harsh measures to deal with immorality and a word you nearly never hear these days, dissolution. <laughs> um, and one just has to try and guess what they mean by a dissolute person, what a dissolute person would be in their eyes. So that, if you like, is the is the combination. It is isolationist. It is which is contradictory because they also seek to build up this national conservative picture internationally. Um, it is highly traditionalist. It is highly religious. It is highly authoritarian in practice, or it would have to be. Um, and I think the majority of people who were there did understand that they were doing that, uh, that they were there, but I think the conservative politicians didn't. One or two of them did. So there's a Tory, two Tory backbenchers who have formed an organisation called the New Social Covenant. Uh, Danny Kruger, an old Etonian, 
who was Boris Johnson's, I think one of Boris Johnson's uh, private secretaries for a while, worked at number 10. And son. And who is Prudhoe's son, um, who is now hardline, what you might call a communitarian, uh, who deprecates things like um, uh, uh, effectively anything that gets away from the family. So he had this phrase in his speech, which caused some waves. And he's also come out in the past as being anti-abortion, which essentially said, we must can't be afraid to say that this family, the man, woman family is better than all the others and kind of uh, come out with that but also who condemned Thatcherism. Very unusual, as you know, to hear conservative MPs from the right condemn Thatcher and Thatcherism. But this is one of the other aspects of the National Conservatives, which you see a little bit in some of the younger ones, like the woman who took over from me at the Times, Juliet Samuel, which is to say, we should now have national protectionist industrial policies uh, in order to protect our economy. And part of the problem for a country like Britain is because we are relatively small, we don't really stand to gain from protectionist policies on the part of the United States, China or the EU, but they don't quite see that and so on. But it's a very big departure from Thatcherism on the economic field. Yet again, the big Tories like Rees Mogg, who turned up, extolled the virtues of the um, uh, free market, but the people in the hall themselves and their organisers, the key speakers, the people they were really responding to, uh, deprecated the free market as being part of the liberal tradition. That was liberalism's fault. Essentially, the thing to understand is they hate liberalism. In all its uh, forms. Yeah, there are four rules and four traditions. They think essentially the way people should live was established many centuries ago. The countries in which they uh, should live were established, embarrassingly, probably rather more recently. Uh, But nevertheless, um, in the case of Israel, for example, Hazoni has effectively said that the land of greater Israel was promised to the Jews by God, and that's how you established where the nation state's going to be, which, as we know, slightly skates over a pretty big problem that they've got there um, by pretending that it simply doesn't exist, Um, which why it's no surprise that one of his great heroes was the Israeli um, uh, neo-fascist Meir Kahan. Um, Hazoni has written that he deprecates his methods, i.e. non-state violence, but absolutely supported his politics. This is a form of extremism which I really felt that most of the people, snippet proportion of the people in the hall, simply didn't understand. Uh, they won't have understood it. They won't have made the links. But nevertheless, there it was. You you say when you're talking of the, the leaders who represent this sort of philosophy, you, you've got Ron, Ron DeSantis, uh, who is sort of in this in area, um, Giorgio Meloni in Italy, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Would you put Netanyahu in, in this, or is he? I mean, I was thinking of the the curbing of the power of the judges versus the state, or is that a completely different? No, I think I think I I'm told I was at an event at the Israeli embassy last week, which was hosted by the Jewish Chronicle, at which several Israeli people, including the Likud deputy mayor of um, uh, of Jerusalem. And the consensus was that Netanyahu's actually not that bothered by the business of, of curtailing the judicial freedom. It wasn't his idea, it's not his priority, but it very much is the priority of some of the people who, he's had, who he has brought into his latest coalition, who are Kahanites and who are from the, the far right 
Um, the scale of this disaster, I don't think, is is really apparent to, to people. It's apparent to Israelis, I think, but it's not apparent to people outside Israel just how uh, just how bad that is. And there was some kind of belief that these things, even that won't be enacted, that there will actually be some form of compromise. But in these other places, Maloney, I'm not really qualified to say whether or not, because she, she blows both ways. So, for example, the national conservatism, national def, natural default position would be to admire Putin because he is actually a national conservative, um, but is made difficult by the fact that the sovereign Ukraine was invaded by the sovereign Russia. Mm. But you much, but they much prefer Putin to Zelensky. But in this country, you can't say so. In America, the national conservatives are likely to say things like, um, Biden must turn off the spigot of funds that goes to Ukraine without proper supervision, i.e. don't give him the money. Mm. Um, which uh, I think we know what that, what that amounts to. Um, which is the old isolation, becomes the old isolationist position. Let me run through one or two other figures who are mentioned in your piece. Um, so you've got the, the, the uh, as we must call her, the, the, the controversial head teacher Catherine Burble Singh. Um, you write that she suggested that when the England football team played in the World Cup, it could be seen as somehow unacceptable for people to openly support <laughs> the national side. Uh, that that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Well, this was this was. Well, I was talking to your producer just before we began this podcast, and she asked me, "How weird was it, or did you feel because they were also weird, you became the weird one?" And this is a kind of a very good question. And, and what made me feel that I wasn't the weird one was that the Britain that so many of the speakers described simply doesn't correlate to the Britain that is out there. And I don't mean just mean by that in the area of North London where I live. I mean, it isn't there in the culture. It isn't there if you go to Wakefield. It isn't there if you, it isn't there anywhere, uh, really, except in the minds of um, people who work for very right-wing pressure groups out near Tufton Street and in the general vicinity where we are at the moment. Perhaps not as an exalted a building as this one, but nevertheless, <laughs> you know, there they are. I got the strong impression that a large number of the people who were there were either students, overwhelmingly male and almost entirely white, were students who were kind of somehow attracted to it or were the students of some of the right-wing theologians at Cambridge and so on who made up some of who made up some of the committee who had organised the event. They were, were kind of... Were, were a sort of a part of it and they and they were an odd bunch in themselves you know they were all dressed in suits well how often do you see voluntarily 25 year old 25 year old male Londoners wearing suits if they don't have to it's extremely rare. I mean, it becomes like a kind of badge. And I thought, in the first morning, I thought, well, I can't, it's very difficult for me to kind of overhear what they're saying. So I sidled behind a couple of these guys as they went to get a, uh, some street food in Victoria. And I heard one say, oh, he said, he said, I've, yes, I'm going down to France again. He said, um, you know, I always go down about this kind of time of year. You know, I fly down to so-and-so and get the train. To so he said, well, of course, he said, um, um, maybe this summer when I get my pilot's license, I, you know, I'll just be able to fly down. <laughs> I thought, okay, uh, now tell me about what you think the Red Wall are thinking. I mean, mm. you know, so your question was started with Catherine Burblesing and mm. her kind of notion that it was somehow regarded as bad form 
to support England in English pubs during the course of the World Cup. And you wonder, what planet are you on? And so on. And this was after she'd excoriated a group of teachers she'd been with, and herself included, on a visit to India, where the Indian teachers could sing all five verses of the Indian national anthem, but the embarrassed English teachers, or British teachers, couldn't sing more than one verse of the national anthem. I thought, what are you talking about? No one in this country knows more than one <laughs> verse of the national. The Queen wouldn't have known more than one verse of the national anthem. You don't, you don't want to test Prince William on it either, frankly. Um, you, if you if you see what the words are, they are even more ludicrous yeah, can, than the verse we can, do know. Confound their knavish plots is the only. And their navy, yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. Confound yeah. their politics yeah. and their knavish tricks, yeah, etc. Yeah. And then, uh, and then there's another one that seems to praise internationalism, yeah. but that certainly won't yeah. uh, won't get in. <laughs> but she wasn't the only one. I mean, David Goodhart, who founded Prospect Magazine, uh, uh, and more power to him, uh, and has since become something of a kind of hero of some of these people, although a rather more bookish figure, I think, than they are said that when he walks around um, uh, when he walked around during the World Cup wearing an England shirt and carrying a Daunt's book bag, he was given odd looks. He lives one and a half streets away from me. <laughs> I can assure him that if he was given odd looks, it wasn't for that reason. <laughs> it was for some other reason. <laughs> Maybe the kind of look of abstraction, uh, etc. English people are pretty good at celebrating the achievements of the England team yeah. at World Cup time. But this went on and on. Our children were in control of the schools. The teachers weren't. Everall schools, Frank Ferradi, the uh, ex-RCP guy, uh, turned far-right winger. Communist Party of Great yeah. Britain. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the Revolutionary Com Communist Party. Revolutionary yeah. Communist Party. Quite remarkable speech he gave. But one of them was, you know, our schools have been into, turned into clinics to advise kids. Nobody learns. And they thought, oh, for heaven's sake. But this is, but then you realise you're not the weird one. They're the weird ones because they paint a picture of Britain. There are little elements of truth here and there. Uh, there are, you know, they're very, very, very big on the trans issue because they can see it's a wedge issue, really. What they'd really like to do is ban abortion. And there are a couple of uh, uh, references to that, which were kind of sotto voce. Um, but um, their bit of the sexual culture wars is all concentrating on what I say in the piece is the terrible error made by the left in the, uh, in, in the, over the trans issue mm. in alienating uh, so many uh, uh, feminist and natural supporters of the centre left and left uh, by the way in which the uh, by in which the issue has been prosecuted, but they love it. They absolutely love it. Then, this then is their great two, issue. Two two more figures: Matthew Goodwin, who's risen to prominence since his book uh, that came out recently. And well, it, it just pause with what's that kind of reception did Matthew Goodwin? Well, get? this is what this is what I found so interesting. So the Tory uh, bigwigs were not getting great receptions, etc. People felt they weren't addressing what national conservatism was and had just come along to say to them, aren't we great and back us, etc. You know, Lord Frost did this kind of ridiculous thing about national conservatism, maybe the future of conservatism, without ever giving the slightest sign they understood what it was, which probably is characteristic, I would guess. Just a wild guess. Um, yeah, and a wild guess. Now, Matthew Goodwin, who was, when I first met him, was a very decent academic who'd studied, a very young, decent young academic, who'd studied the far right with, along with another academic called Rob Ford, wrote a very, very good book called Revolt on the Right to understand the UKIP phenomenon, looking at it statistically. Um, has gradually, over time, become actually 
a politician of the far right himself, not one in a party, but nevertheless one who espouses and writes all the tropes uh, which a Farage would speak as if they were his own opinions uh, and so on. And his speech went down incredibly well. And it, was a, an, a, and it was an assault on the Conservative Party for not being national conservative, for not essentially being right-wing and traditional enough. Um, and his proposition is a bit that if the Conservative Party were to become this thing or somebody else would become this thing, then they would clean up the kind of votes that they got during Brexit uh, and so on, or is they would get a substantial number of them that they got in Brexit and the big great realignment will be back on with the populist right back having a significant chance at ruling the roost and they loved it. After the break we'll talk more about how conservative thinkers have lost touch with the electorate. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app, and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 a month. Visit prospectmagazine, or one word, .co.uk to subscribe now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And the standing ovation was reserved for your old Times colleague, Melanie Phillips. So yeah. What, what, um, did, what did she say to get that? Melanie Phillips is after another one who's been on the journey because um, when you and I were first aware of her, she was the woman's editor, I think, on The Guardian. I, I, when I joined The Guardian, she sat in the desk next door to me as the social affairs correspondent. Right. Uh, and um, she's one of these people whose politics are terrifying and who is personally a very nice person so it's one of these things which you know really becomes disorienting it'd be much more convenient for all of us if people we disapprove of politically were also just awful people but her speech was horrible i mean just horrible it was uh, bitter angry conspiracist uh, essentially essentially the liberals uh, had taken over the country the cultural marxists had taken over the country they destroyed everything they'd poisoned everything um they'd poisoned the education of the children uh, etc um and the conservative party had just given in to them 
the Conservative Party had led all this happening. They'd let all the migrants in. Uh, Anti-migration, incidentally, I should have said, was an absolutely constant theme mm-hmm. of the uh, of the conference. It was in almost every speech in one way or another. It's a kind of reference, we've got to kind of cut it down uh, and so on. There wasn't a big understanding of what migration is to a country like Britain and so on. So even some of the top speakers totally conflated the small boats issue with the overall migration numbers and so on, as if they were the same and therefore would suggest, for example, that if you came out of the EHRC and out of the Court of European Court of Human Rights, you would be able to solve the overall problem of migration and get the migration net numbers down. The two things had nothing whatsoever to do with each other. It didn't matter. You know, here's a here's a esteemed Cambridge theologian in a raging speech telling these audiences and them lapping up, and it's all total nonsense and so on. So Melanie Phillips' speech was very much around the kind of, and then they've done this, you know, uh, um, there were lots of places where she wouldn't quite say the thing that she wanted to say. She wouldn't quite say that allowing gay rights in the way in which Western countries have has suborned and undermined the family, or allowing divorce to be easy had suborned the family, or allowing women's equality had suborned the family. But those were all kind of implicit in the kinds of things she was saying. And her attack on the Tories, economically and socially, was total. And that was the point at which almost everybody in the hall who was then there gave her a standing ovation, apart from me. I'm sure she noticed. So you, uh, as I say, you sat there so that we didn't have to. You sat through three days of this. um, uh, And you describe it very vividly in the piece. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being there. Um, But then at the end, you have a comforting note because you say, well, actually, in terms of us, in terms of this country, there's nothing in the polling that suggests any of this resonates with with people. Yeah, I mean, we... In a way, some of the Conservatives who were there were looking at it to see if there was within it the kind of the germ of revival. I think, I mean, I I know, of course, that people on the centre-left are incredibly nervous. They were actually nervous before the 1997 election as well, after the experience of losing the 1992 election when people had expected maybe Labour to to win. So there's, and after the experience of Brexit and after the experience of Trump, there's been always this kind of feeling, oh yeah, well, we might be 14, or Labour might be 14 points ahead of the poll, but maybe they're all lying to us and maybe they'll all change their minds by the time we come to it uh, and so on. The Tory are not reading it like that you know they may be have getting friendly commentators to write that in the papers but that's not how conservative mps see it they see themselves after coming up for 14 years as being extremely unpopular with the electorate who by and large are very ready for a change uh, uh, and time for change is a very potent threat so they were casting around in within the kind of national conservative pool to see if there were a kind of body of ideas and approaches which they could borrow or attach themselves to which might give them a chance, a bigger chance. But the problem was simply this, as, a, 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 as I looked at it, and as I also kind of examined the polls to see what uh, attitudes are and so on, including in the, fa- the fabled Red Wall, but also attitudes to things like Brexit. Do people now regret Brexit? Well, the actual Brexit majority died off two years ago. I mean, just natural mortality. There was such an age skew in the original referendum vote that the majority for it 
uh, died off. And it has not been replaced by people who voted remain in that, uh, who now think it was a great idea to come out, or by younger voters who say, yeah, yeah, that was, that, that was fun. That seems to have worked out. I, you know, I'm happy with that. So appealing to people on the basis of, as the National Conservatives do, Brexit was the great kind of liberating moment in British history and the reference point in which it should turn. Just, I mean, Rishi Sunak has, still has a problem with this himself. It won't work electorally because people simply don't believe it. Um, then, the, if you like, the kind of auth social authoritarianism, the culture war stuff, that doesn't take either. Attitudes towards immigration not totally positive by any means in terms of the numbers, but in terms of the positive contribution made by immigration have been transformed in the course of the last 10 to 15 years. It's in all the polls. And younger people are not becoming more conservative about these issues as they get older. They're taking the attitudes that they go through adolescence with into adulthood. In other words, that national conservative base is dying. It's not growing, it's dying, and it's dying quite quickly. And in any case, even in terms of older voters, the sets of propositions the National Conservatives have don't really ring because they have other things to worry about, um, which are pretty obvious. We could list them very easily, the cost of living, inflation, um, uh, and so on. Maybe there's a wedge issue in something like crime, because people always worry about uh, crime. But, you know, Labour's led by a, a former DPP. So every time that comes up, you can tell you what's really happening with crime with a kind of sense of authority. Um, in other words, we're not hungry. And we're not... So, you know, we're, we're not some of, we're not Texas either, um, uh, where you can have a significant number of people who believe this. We're not even France, uh, and so on, with that kind of sense of perpetual declinism and national pessimism. So my conclusion is, if you look at these things as coldly as possible, try and take yourself out of the equation in your own kind of opinion. It's not easy when you're confronted with people like this, but nevertheless, if you do, when they talk about what the majority of people believe, what they're actually saying is this is what we think the majority of people should believe. But they fundamentally believe that modern Britain is rotten and they don't like it. They don't. They are patriots who hate their country. And that is a problem when you're going to an electorate because essentially what they will be going to the electorate to say is we, don't dis we disapprove of you. We hope you disapprove of you too and will vote for us. Well, that's a very comforting note to end on what, after what could have been a, a, a rather gloomy and frightening experience. But, but having read your piece and uh, experienced the three days with you, I agree with you. It, it, it felt as though none of this really resonated with the country that I think I live in. So, well, you're left with the embarrassment of running a major piece which doesn't say we're all doomed. Yeah, that sticks in the throat. But anyway, it's, it's, summer is coming on and we, we owe it to our readers to cheer them up. Thank you so much, David, for coming in. If you enjoyed this podcast, then the brand new issue of Prospect magazine, which includes David's excellent cover essay. It has writing from Sarah Manavis on the conspiratorial world of Russell Brand, Stella Assange on how journalism has been criminalised, a diary from Ian Dale, who is recovering from a nasty fall. Uh, and Sheila Hancock on why we should rethink capitalism. 
While you're here, why not subscribe another podcast which we record monthly and love, Prospect Lives, which is a series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila and the Anglican priest Alice Goodman and the former England cricket captain Michael Brearley. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.